doesn't fellowship in the body of Christ at large anymore. He has now found himself a safe little, small little community of believers that meets in somebody's house. And so um, the things that I want to share with you today probably sound, um, I don't know how to describe it, but it's been born because I've watched my own personal mistakes end up hurting a lot of people. Now, there is a modicum of fruitfulness in my life, obviously, but when I get to heaven, I think Jesus will be the judge of that. So um, I just want to give you some things um, before we get into my notes that are um, foundational concepts that are in my bones to how I want to share with you how I see and develop leaders. And the first thing that I want to share with you is this, is that a vision without a plan is a daydream. And a plan without a godly vision can turn into a nightmare. And somehow, as successful transformational mentors, you and I need to find a place where we can live and people begin to embrace something in the middle that is challenging to them, transformational to them, and nonetheless is challenging to us as we lead them into a place that we really think and they believe that God has given us a, a promised land, if you will. The, uh, the second thing that I want to share with you is that a vision is a daydream until somebody you disciple can communicate your vision to somebody else in detail and then recruit them to do the same thing that you've recruited them to do. That's when a vision becomes reality. Until that time, in my mind, maybe not yours, but in my mind, it's just something that you whiteboard or you discuss, but there's no impetus, there's no power, there's no motivation. As soon as you get people believing and communicating and recruiting others to believe what, you, what you've convinced them to believe is the Lord, that's when you have sustainable momentum. And that's when hell all of a sudden begins to take notice. Because now you become a threat to it and a blessing to heaven. The, um, the other thing that I'd like to say, there's a couple of more things, and I'll get into my notes, is that our role as mentors is not to make my dreams and visions come true. It's to make the people I mentor dreams and visions come true. And you can't do that without deep communicating relationships with them. You can't do that until you figure out how they're hardwired. Where, where their fears exist, where their anxiety exists, where their confidence happens to be. And so it, it, takes, um, it, it, it takes an awful lot, in my mind at least, time to just spend so you begin to share your hearts. And I know you know this, but there is always somebody around you that dreams. There's always somebody around you that develops and there's always somebody around you that can drive the dream and the developer. And when you get a dreamer and a developer and a driver all together and they begin to embrace your vision, you have synergy. And when you have synergy, the whole becomes far more potent than just individual people. And again, um, I just want you to know that that has always been sort of the way that I would view when I would look at prospective leaders I would look for the dreamer. I would try to find a developer to hook up with that dreamer. And then I would try to find somebody that drives everybody nuts, a driver, that somehow can just get their arms, his or her arms around it, 
and make the thing flow. One more thing before I get in my notes. Um, I want to talk to you about how I've ascertained my own journey. And there are uh, four stages um, that I think that will make you a transformational leader or you need to look for when you look for people that you want to begin to say, I think I can develop you as a mentor into a leader. And the first step, I think, is what I want to call unconscious competence. It's you don't know what you don't know. You're just wild-eyed. You think you love Jesus. You think you're called into the ministry. And um, I think it's where all of us begin. I think it's where most people that the Lord would bring mentors around us begin. And um, it was the kind of thing that Peter would say to the Lord. You know, when Jesus was talking about, you know, going to the cross, he said, be that far from you, Lord. No, no, no. He, He just didn't know what he didn't know. I think there's a second stage, and it's called conscious incompetence. It's, uh, you know, finally, what you don't know. You finally reach the point where you know what you don't know. And we know an example in the Bible when the 70 returned. They were coming and they were talking to the Lord and said, even the devils are subject to us. And Jesus said, time out, guys. That's not the point. That's not the point. But they had moved now from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence. And here's the third step. Is when you become consciously competent. Is that you know what you know. You know what you know. And again, I think we have that in the life of Peter, for example, when... Jesus and Matthew takes them away and says, who do they say the son of man am? And they are going, you preached on the thing. You're Jeremiah and the prophet and whatever. Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. All of a sudden, Peter moved to a place of where he was consciously competent. He knew what he knew. But I think the highest of all is when you become unconsciously competent. Where... You don't know what you know. Or you don't know what you know. I think that's the place of humility. I think that's a place, you know, people will say to you, you're, you're wise. And you think to yourself, you're dumb. <laughs> but somehow, you, you, you've gone through all of these stages and... I just need to say one more thing to you because I just so deeply believe this, that mandates from God, the, 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 the sense of passion you feel about the future as you disciple young people or as you develop mission and ministry, mandates from God are not options. Because a mandate from God in the mandate it comes with the power of God to seize the dreams of those you mentor. Inherent in the mandate is the presence and the power of God to pull this off way beyond anything that you could ask or think. All of us know Ephesians 3.20. I mean, we quote it, but sometimes we don't believe it. Is that we have a God that can do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond anything that we can ask or think. And if you're here driven by a mandate, I don't care how you verbalize it. Something in your heart, a dream, a vision. I don't know what it is, a hope, whatever. I just want you to know it's not an option. 
Because if the Lord puts a mandate in your soul, inherent in it is the presence and the power of God to pull it off. It'll take faith. Well, with that said, let's open our notes to... um, I want to talk to you about how to develop an institute or a school that creates transformational ministry. Historically, um, Jan and I have been doing this a long time. I think we're in our 17th or 18th year of our ELN program. And I don't believe there's anything more important in the local church than to identify and training and assimilating young leaders into God-given leadership roles. Over the years, Jan and I have developed two Christian schools. One was K through high school. We had full contact football. Of course, we have our uh, ELN Bible program. And uh, I'm also presently in a transition. Our our church had a five-year transition program, and uh, this is the beginning of the last year. And um, I, I was caught by surprise. One day I was thinking about our transition has been as peaceful and as wonderful as anything that, that, that I could ever think of. And when I began to think of who is on our staff that has gone through our ELL program, I was stunned. Uh, do you have the notes there in front of you? Oh, my gosh. L- let me give you letter B as far as... Who on our team is presently ministering in our church? The guy that's going to take the senior role, John Kobler, is a graduate of our ELN program. Our church administrator, Jake Broker, is a graduate of our ELN program. Shane Rogers, who's here with some, some of his uh, ELN leaders and all that stuff, He's a graduate of our ELN program. Mike Barker, who does all of our online campus, is a graduate of our ELN program. Guy that does our graphics, ELN graduate. Andy Irwin, the guy that does um, our video, is an ELN graduate. And Kirby, our ELN director, our ELN director, is all a graduate from our ELN program. And here's the thing that caught me by surprise. Is that when, when Jan and I began to begin our transition, we wanted the culture to change because we're old. I mean, both of us have turned 70. We're old. We don't get children anymore. We don't get young adults anymore. We're, 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 we're Nana and Papa, you know, and it's, it's what it is. And so when, when we began to think about our transition and pray about it, we began to realize that the DNA of our church hasn't changed because they've all graduated from our ALM program. But what has changed is our culture. And the culture change has made our church more current, more relevant. Um, it's embracing younger generations and younger people now. So let her see. I believe it takes youth to capture youth. And I really believe it takes an older established leader to risk. To risk. I mean, if you want an ELN program or a ministry institute, or if you're thinking about transition or whatever it is, it takes an older leader to risk. It takes youth to keep church leadership agile, to both embrace and capture and assimilate, integrate and change and release subsequent generations. And here's the nifty thing about having young, the young adults around you, is that young adults demand that we stay relevant. To our community. They demand it. Uh, I, and, and how I began to notice this. Is that there were Sundays. 
in our early stages where we would dedicate all four services, four or five children, a service. And as we began to progress through our decades of 40 and 50 and 60, all of a sudden we weren't dedicating four or five children a service. We were dating one or two. And then pretty soon a month would go by and we wouldn't dedicate anybody. And I'd be looking at the congregation and they all started looking like me. And I thought to myself, this is not good. This is really not good. So once you, once you develop a, uh, a, a risk factor where you are willing to embrace the young, unchurched people around you, it'll make your congregation far more relevant. Number three, it takes youth to make the kind of mistakes that keep the establishment supple, graceful, remembering. And here's the big thing, forgiving. The hardest thing for old people to do is to forgive because they paid their dues, they've forgiven enough, and they just want the church their way. And the greatest thing you can do, I mean, we used to watch some of our ushers when we had, um, these are years ago when Rick Fry was, was um, our youth pastor, is that during some worship services, we would have seventh graders standing on the chairs in the main sanctuary. And you would think, this doesn't happen in church. But nonetheless, you know, when you have a vibrant youth group, somehow you're, you're, you're willing to let that kind of behavior develop the older people and shape the older people rather than the older people trying to shape somebody that doesn't quite get it yet. I wonder, so do you, I suppose, how many Timothys would be placed <clears throat> in the kind of positions today that Paul placed Timothy into. And you know, Paul placed Timothy in the hottest church on the planet in the city of Ephesus. And he was a teenager. It's the most wonderful thing for me to watch our ELM students stand up in front of a congregation of service and open it. Because at at, at our place, the opening and the closing to us are just as important as the worship and the sermon. And they get it. Okay, letter D. An institute or an ELN program can help smaller churches become larger and more compelling to the community in which the church resides. And here's why. I think students help serve where servants and volunteers may be absent. That's an important role because they just don't shove papers, but they begin to shove the gospel into the lives of people and, and, uh, and other ministries. E, Anthem, uh, Church of Living Waters ELN program, deliberately began as a youth movement to benefit the kingdom of God and living water, not a church movement that benefited young adults. We, we decided, I mean, our finished product had twofold. Number one, we want the kids to finish well. And number two, we, we wanted our young adults to be involved in a program that all of a sudden they were involved not just helping the church become better, but they became kingdom, kingdom disciples to make the kingdom of God better and larger. Their vision increased. We've been doing this now for 19 years. And uh, you've expected I probably have some thoughts about this. And here are three. Um, I believe in order to run a successful program, three things have to happen. You, you, have, to be, you, you have to have preparation. Is that up there? You, you have to be prepared. That's your homework. You have to be willing to adapt. That's your groundwork. 
And you have to constantly be altering your preferences. Now, uh, do me a favor and look up here, please. When I talk about, excuse me, altering your preferences, I'm not talking about A-L-T-E-R. I'm talking about A-L-T-A-R. Because when, when you've been hanging around ministry for a while and you have a modicum of fruitfulness, it is really easy for the leader to begin to believe that he or she their preferences probably are going to be relevant to the culture behind them. And I'm not too sure that's right. So I really believe that if you're going to have a successful program or a successful ministry, you have to prepare, you have to be willing to adapt, but most important, you have to be willing to alter, A-L-T-A-R, the things that you would want to hold dear and close. Tim, boss holder, you're walking out on my teaching. I can't believe this. You're walking out of my kitchen. We want to make sure we're on the right page. Oh, okay. Thanks, Tim. I'm just kidding. Thank you. Always. Always. Prepare, adaptation, and alter. You know what we ought to do? Oh, let's just leave that off for a while. Okay? That way they'll look at me and not you. Um, here's... Let, let me talk to you about somebody that's been doing this for almost 40 years. When I got saved, it worked to preach. It worked just to preach. I got saved in the Jesus movement. I watched guys like Lonnie Frisbee who couldn't read the Bible uh, get saved. And one night uh, I was watching him and he tried to read John 3.16. When Lonnie Frisbee looked at himself in the mirror, he saw this half of his face and this part of his skull. I mean, he, he didn't see the, the right part of his face. He tried to read John 3.16. And uh, he couldn't read it. It was still King James Bible. And, you know, the Bibles weren't in modern language then. And he just literally closed the Bible. And this is what he said. You need to get saved. And hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of people came forward. That was it. You need to get saved. They didn't have a clue. They just got saved. But... I'm watching now the kind of kids that are coming into our church and my perceptions toward what, how Jan and I got saved are beginning to change. And I want to talk to you about that a little bit. Because sermon and sermonizing alone, understand this now, won't reach your culture. And it certainly won't reach cultures, two or three cultures behind you, even if you're in your late 20s. Greg Van Gelder in his book called The Essence of the Church writes these words. When people are told that they are going to die if they don't make a lifestyle change, hear me, nine out of ten won't change. And he goes on and he says, preaching the word will not build a church in this day and age. And here's what I believe will really affect the people you mentor is when, irrespective of their age, young or old, they see a radically changed life. You agree? If they see authentic, loving relationships. You agree? I do too. Where they see the power of God in signs and wonders. You agree? I was just talking to a young person the other day. Jan and I ministered in, in Reading for almost 14 years. Bethel has got that ministry now in Reading. And they want to know how I feel about Bethel. I know Bill personally. I knew his father personally. And I've sent our, you know... I mean, I've sent our leaders down there. And here's the thing about Bethel. 
that I have never been able to develop in my ministry, ever, is that they develop a significant number of people that when they walk out of the building, hear me, they believe they can raise the dead. And I don't care about throwing spaghetti or quarters on a wall. You know, I don't care about all the silliness. But you talk to those students that are in that church. They believe that the power of God is resident and real and potent and powerful. And they will walk down the street. And if they believe that God told them, right, a mandate, if they believe that God told them to go witness to them, they will. And they believe that they can raise the dead. And for a guy that's been doing this for a long time, I'm a little bit jealous because I've never been able to do that. Have you? So, I I think, for those of us that are going to be in ministry, if Jesus tarries for a number of years, that there's been three shifting realities in which I think a relevant leader, a relevant church, a relevant mentor has to live, confront, challenge, and change. Three. And here they are. I think that we always have to be attuned to the religious realities of the day in which we minister. The second thing is, I think we need to be attuned to the relational realities to whom we minister. Because every day, every week, every year, there's a new crop of people, new people in your church, people in your ministry. Religious, relational, and the third part is regional. What we do in Olympia won't work where, where you live. Maybe some of it will. But there's religious, there's relational, and there's regional. Let me talk to you about some of the things I've seen so far. About religious realities. The people that are coming into our church that are 35 and younger... The people who are coming in our church that are in their teens, there, there is a conceptual diversity with how they think about God. I always say to people who are standing behind a pulpit, when you talk about God, you, you <clears throat> in this day and age, excuse me, <clears throat> when you talk about God, you have to be far more clear to the people you're talking to because when you say God, they have got a concept that is as, as variegated as color. Let me suggest to you that you have to say things like this. The God of the Bible. Um, We've heard for years that everybody's going to worship something or someone. And people who are 35 and younger, I I want you to catch this now because maybe you don't agree with it, but, but I happen to passionately believe this, that they worship creation way before they worship the creator. I call this echo-theology, I suppose, where, you know, somebody that really loves me, like Tim Mossold or my wife would have brought this up, but thank you very much, Courtney. Really good. Thanks. By the way, this is too cold. Uh, Do you have a warmer one? I'm just kidding. Thank you. Thank you. Um... I, I, I just want to talk to you about a concept for a minute. Um, it's called, in my mind, it's called echo theology, where 
you know, we have people coming into our, our churches and into our missions and ministries where the preservation of the climate is more important to them than the preservation of the soul. They've been, uh, they've been taught not just recycling, but they've taught about relativism and, and their eco-theology or their green religion. They, they just want to save the planet way before they're interested in witnessing to somebody to save their soul. And whether you think it's true or not, you have to deal with it. Because they can't verbalize it that way. People give their lives to support Mother Earth. And although I think this makes planet sense, I suppose it's a good thing. But when you think about it, it's Cain's offering. And uh, I think, too, it's a seedbed for the Antichrist to build his platform for a one world government. But, but what bothers me more than anything else about this is that we, we have a hard time convincing those we minister to because in echo religion and green planet religion, nobody has to die. They, they, they preserve something that's dying. And when you tell them about the cross and the flesh and dying, I mean, they, they, they are so far away from that kind of concept. I mean, you, you have to rope them back to just zero before you can talk to them about the flash and putting the old man dead and all of those kind of things. So, and I, I think, you know, for, you know, the young people and how they've grown up with social media, it's easy to... You have a question back there? Ecology. I don't know. It, it seemed it seemed cool. <laughs> I was thinking of ecology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was just thinking of ecology and that kind of thing, and I just eco. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, eco. Thank. You know what? That's the that's the first person that's ever. I've said this a thousand times. How come somebody hasn't somebody hasn't corrected me? You're right. <laughs> eco theology. Thanks. Sorry about that. Everybody get my point, though? Everybody get it? Okay. Eco. All right. Now, when, when we're still talking about that, thank you, by the way. Uh, here's, here's the thing about eco-theology or what's happening in the minds of the young people. Is that entrance into, into this kind of religion, if you will, is easy. The acceptance is global. Praise is generously given. They end up with like-minded relationships. Friends are painless to develop. Reward is easy to measure and give. Judgmentalism is non-existent. Um, they live a life of minimal accountability. They're instantly connected with people who hold the same passions and belief. They feel good about themselves, and they're identified with world leaders. And that's everything you want Christianity to be.
Let me talk a little bit about what I've noticed about relational realities. Because of social media, it, it, it is really easy for the people that we are going to begin to minister to who are 35 and under, where they grow very, very wide, but they have no idea how to grow deep, and they're fearful to do that. Because the people they've tried to be honest to have hurt them. So they have poor interrelational skills and very poor, in my mind, social uh, problem-solving skills. That's the relational issue that... Let me talk to you a little bit about regional realities, which are unique to you and your, your local church. I've always said, you know, that you would never be able to develop a, a church that would reach the community if you preached in the same kind of apparel that Paul the Apostle preached in. I mean, if you preached in a toga. And so, doctrine cannot change. But the approach to the culture must. And the risk is that you're going to violate a lot of people who don't quite get that yet and want your church to remain the way it was when they came there. And we have somebody in our church that's been in our church, I think, 60 years. I mean, she, she and her husband have been in our church for 60 years. Now, let me talk to you about how I think about preparing for an ELN or a new ministry in your church. Whatever you're going to call your ministry, let me say this, it must it must, it must be the senior leader's passion. It won't go anywhere. It will not sustain itself or gain motivation unless the senior pastor's passion, the senior leader's passion is, is beginning to lead it. Someone else can and should have a passion to participate with the senior leader, but the senior leader must be the driving force behind the passion Uh, people don't have to know the senior leader's face but what they will have to know is the senior leader's committed heart and finances eco finances eco heart thank you An ELN program or a ministry institute can be birthed in the mind of a leader, but it has got to flow from the heart of the senior leader. He or she must be constantly talking about this. So Roman number four, let me give you steps in my mind for an effective preparation. Number one, you clarify your purpose, your core values, and standards intentionally and consistently. You clarify them intentionally and consistently. Let me talk to you a little bit about clarifying your purpose. And this is how I think always. I, 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 I never start with the beginning. I always start with the end. You, you describe your finished product First, 
You have to have a target. And number one thing in my mind is that included in your finished target is that you have to have a program where those who are involved in your program finish. Now, we we have a three-year program. I believe that Jesus discipled his disciples for a thousand days or thereabouts. So our one, second, and third year, and now I'm talking to Jessica last night when we were at dinner, and uh, now she's beginning to stay because now she's going to be involved as a staff member. But you, you just need to have a, a, a clarion understanding of what the target is going to look like before you begin to even begin to talk about it. You have to identify a model. Bible Institute, ministry intern, course credits from Life Pacific, those kind of things. A vision isn't a vision until at least one other person believes it and can communicate it with passion and in detail to somebody else. Don't kid yourself. Until somebody can communicate it with the same passion you communicated to them and they get it and they can recruit somebody else to do it. That's when it begins to to sustain momentum. Steps for an effective preparation. Assess the needs thoroughly. Funding, teachers, stipends, gifts, student housing, apartments, other people's, all of that stuff. Number three is the big thing to me. Is it up there? Evaluate your leader's ability to maintain your core values. Is that up there? Evaluate your leader's ability to maintain your core values. Stop and look up here for a second. Jan and I planted a church in Reading in 1977. In 1982, it split. And during that time, uh, it sounds more noble than it is, but I went on a 40-day fast. And uh, rented this beat-up little old motorhome and drove away. And took big, big pieces of... uh, of um, post-it notes and on the back of the motorhome over the back window I-, I wrote these words with a sharpie who am I and then I took another one and I stuck it on the bathroom door which was in the middle of this thing why am I and then another one I stuck on the front window of the motorhome what will I never do again because I was alone I mean the church was flying apart Got a letter from a lady that said, thank you, Pastor Bird. It took Jesus 2,000 years to build the church, and you're destroying it in two. Lovely things. You know, the kind of people you really want to disciple. <laughs> With a hatchet. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the 40 days, uh, I, I, I understood those three things, at least as best as I could. And it was during those 40 days that I came up with my core values, IECCR. Now, let me make my statement again, and then I want to prove it. You have to evaluate those who are ministering with you, those to I, 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 able to identify and maintain your core values. Now, Kirby, stand up for a second, would you? Surprise, surprise. Kirby, Kirby is a, a graduate of our ELN program, and now she runs it. 
Help us understand what IECCR is, would you? Sure. Do you want me to explain? Oh, here, come here. I'm going to really put you on the spot. Here's the deal. I don't know if anybody has graduated from our ELN program that does not believe what she's about to tell you. You're pretty enough to stand up on this platform. There you are. Um, so the first one is integrity, which um, is being integrous to the word of God and living above reproach, um, living a life that is in alignment to what the word of God says. And secondly, excellence of effort. And probably second to integrity, this is uh, one of my favorites. I harp on it all the time with our Anthem students. Um, but doing the best that you can and to your highest effort. And the thing that I love about that is that, um, you know, especially for Anthem students, they're so used to coming in and having to perform and to be perfect at the things that they do. And we strive to do that because Jesus was perfect and that's who we're striving to be like every day. But um, that's not what we're asking of our students, but to do everything to the best of their ability. Um, second is courage, or third is courage, which is um, facing and conquering your fears and believing God's promises in every circumstance in your life. Um, consistency is doing what you've promised that you're going to do. And then relevance, which is the last one, which is being willing to alter your preferences and your style in order to reach the next generation without compromising the word of God. Wonderful. Thank you. Equal mic. It's, it's really important. I, I just need to emphasize this again. I, I mean, I think you all get it. And forgive me if I'm pressing something home that, that I don't need to because you got it. But if, if those who minister with you cannot tell other people about you and what you value, they'll just never get it. And you never seem to have this cadence or this rhythm, this surging kind of... Of, of, of a battle formation where everybody's left foot comes down at the same time. It just, it's imposing once everybody gets what you really believe to be true about you. Um, number four, set meaningful. This is steps for an effective preparation. Set meaningful, measurable, and manageable goals that's understood by all. By the students, by your volunteers, by your leaders. Here's why. Um, unclear or uncommunicated expectations only lead to frustration for everyone and, and it undermines it undermines your leadership. There is such a thing in the body of Christ as godly rebellion and it, and it isn't anything other than people wanting to do the best job they can around you, but they're doing it in a way that you just don't happen to embrace it at this particular point in time. And you correct those kind of people two or three times, they're just going to get frustrated and go someplace else where they can really live. Um, you must make time for your leaders and volunteers to communicate to you often regarding their visions, desires, and probably underlying this part, frustrations. Of course, funding and fundraising. That's steps. Uh, e, determine and plan purposely what it is you want in their heads and what you want from their hearts. That's two different things. That's two different things. 
right? I mean, it's easy to tell them all kinds of information, but it's harder to evaluate what they do with that information when it somehow leaves their head and, and somehow exhibits itself through your heart, through their hearts. Letter B, how do you plan for effective? You choose your leaders and volunteers carefully and intentionally. You choose them because they have a passion for the ministry without unity within the ministry. A passion for the ministry without unity within the ministry will only lead to frustration, agitation, and disillusionment. I think you all know that. I've said this a lot. You've probably experienced it, maybe not. But uh, people somehow, when they become disillusioned and begin to talk to others about their disillusionment, they mistake unified animosity for unity. When in reality, it's just a unified hostility against you or your program. And I think you can stave a lot of that off by choosing your leaders carefully and very intentionally. Number two, B2, never assume anything, especially the understanding of goals and core values and or motives of those involved with you and with your program. I think assumption has probably got us all in trouble, right? Can I get an amen? Can I get a witness? There we are. The maintenance of high or specific standards can sometimes drive leaders and volunteers nuts and cause them to quit in frustration and failure because they see you as unreasonable. I don't think that I've had more difficulty with people coming to understand why we keep the bar so high when they don't understand why the value and then the bar needs to be so high. Why is the standard always so high? And I think sometimes the hardest conversations I've had with people is to help them come to the conclusion that we have high standards that are different than theirs for various reasons. And if you, can, if you spend time letting the people talk to you about that, you don't become unreasonable anymore. You become rational. Monitor the personal, marital, and spiritual health of those serving with you. How do you develop? Letter C, communicate, communicate, communicate. Never underestimate the value of communication, the reasons for your passion to other leaders presently serving in other ministry. And I want to call this the uh, sharing of servant value. And by servant value, I mean this. When you begin to initiate or instigate a new mission or a new ministry, those who have been serving with you for a while somehow seem all of a sudden you've diverted your attention from them and you're focusing your attention on something fresh, something new, and a new leader. And what I'm suggesting is that you always reevaluate and look at those who are serving with you who have been loyal for a long time and never forget the sharing of servant value. And by that I mean this. Everybody's ministry is as important to you as this new one. Everybody's heart is important to you. And if you do this consistently and if you do this constantly, those who have been in leadership with you for months, years, for a long time, they don't feel somehow that they have been shoved out to a corner someplace. They feel valued. Letter D, how do you win? You adopt a vision where everybody wins often, often. And I mean it. You celebrate the smallest of victories. 
And then, of course, letter E, I think it's up there, the implementation of your annual calendar. Do you have the notes in front of you? So, so you have these, these ideas? Okay, I, I'm going to run through them real quick. The implementation of an annual calendar, you need to think this through. Your launch date, how do you prepare your congregation, student housing, funding, leader training and introduction, volunteer recruiting, student recruiting. By the way, if you want my notes, they're here somewhere. Fundraising dates, I think they're back here somewhere. Mission trips, where and why. And certainly, the graduation ceremony, that's a big deal. Okay? Now, I talked to you about adaptation. Let me talk to you about that. What you plan for and what the Holy Spirit has in mind and what circumstances bring will force you and your leaders to adapt and improvise throughout the year. Here's why. Leaders resign. They fail. Students have student stuff like moral failures, family crisis. And notwithstanding, all of you have probably been in a church where there's been a church crisis and you're trying to mitigate everybody's health when everybody's confused and is drawing sides. Adaptation. Under adaptation, letter B. Be prepared to embrace and redesign regularly and jointly, especially in the beginning season of an ever-involving program. Regularly and jointly. Your program will emote the passions, gifts, and motives of those leading the students. And it may be different than what you had thought in the beginning. By that I mean this. Every leader is going to have his or her own passions. And what's, at least in my mind, it's imperative that you are always meeting with them and you are communicating about what's going on and why it's going on in their mind, especially when it's something that's catching you by surprise. And the earlier you catch that, the better your relationship will be in the long run. Regularly and jointly. Don't be afraid to embrace and adjust for what you didn't plan for, but what the Holy Spirit is doing. Letter C. Think through how to handle a leader or volunteer that resigns due to frustration with leadership. Has that ever happened to anybody in this room? Can I see that? Or is it just me? Come on now. Let me see. Anybody ever quit? Yeah. Um, This is what we do at our place. When we have to handle something that's going to break a whole bunch of people's hearts, here's what we do. First thing, we tell the truth without all the facts. The facts of what's going on only makes the truth more hurtful. If you had a loved one killed in a car crash and the, the reality of the person that was in the car, they were mutilated, it's easier for you to say to somebody, so-and-so was killed in a car crash. Yeah. Rather than talking about, well, you know, their head was in the back seat and their arm was out in the freeway. And you just tell the truth. But, but, but the facts don't make the truth more truthful. Right. It's still the truth. And if you don't tell the truth, you know what John says, that the Spirit of God bears witness with it, so they'll know it. But if you want to develop a, a sustainable, trusting, maturing group of men and women, and when you tell them the truth, they'll believe you. Here's the second thing. 
I believe what lives in the dark dies in the light. And when things are going on that are demonic, you just need to get it into the light because that's not the place the devil likes to live. What lives in the dark dies in the light. And last but not least, I think it's during those crisis times that you need to maintain the integrity of those who are going to stand with you and pick up the pieces with you. You need to maintain their integrity. You develop a culture, letter D. Adaptation. You need to develop a culture where victory is celebrated often, where lavish praise is heaped upon all those who are serving. Proverbs 25.11 says, A right word spoken at the right time is beautiful as gold apples in a silver bowl. Let me close. By the way, thanks for your patience. Let me talk to you about the reality of altering your preferences. A-L-T-A-R. When, when you embrace IECCR relevance, it's easy for somebody like me who really values relevance to watch young people want to make changes in a church that I've given my life to. It's hard for people who are in the church that don't get it. And so hanging around young adults will challenge the things that you've come to prefer. Like the new worship songs. Jesus does not worship at these new worship songs. I know that. Because Jesus prefers the songs that I prefer. And I have two choices because when Jen and I are in our church, I mean, we're we're down there in front and I could be going like this. I'm raising my hands because that is really a dumb song. Or I can model what everybody is wanting to know whether or not I like the song or not. So I do this. I don't like this song. But everybody's watching me. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And this is how the Lord taught me this. It's uh, found in Luke. Let it to you. It says, now it happened on a certain day. He was teaching in, and there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town in Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Right? Including the Pharisees of the law. That the power of God was there to heal everybody. Everybody. Including the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. But the people who witnessed the miracle. And who were theologically astute. Didn't get healed. Everybody else did. But not a Pharisee. Or a scribe. And the reason. Is that their preferences were not. A-L-T-A-R-able. You see, I really believe the cost of participating in revival or anything new is that you have to crucify your flesh, which includes your own personal preferences. Either it's personal or prophetic, I suppose. And um, there you are. So, 
In my mind, as I close, there's no greater pursuit than to teach young adults how to hear the voice of God. They get that God loves them, I think, here. But, but once they begin to embrace that they can hear the voice of the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And once they get that, then you can place them into situations that by their own faith, they begin to trust. And by their works, they begin to prove it to themselves that they're serving a God that's eternal, everlasting, very personal and all powerful. I think the risk is high, but the reward is great. And the, the, the greatest benefit I think Jan and I have seen over these 17 or 18 years is that our congregation has been rejuvenated because of them, not because of me. Let me say it again. Our congregation has been revitalized, not because of me, but because of them. And that's the greatest fruitfulness that you can see is to watch young people get that they can hear the voice of God, believe that they can raise the dead, and then change your congregation at the same time. Lord, I would lay this out for you as simple, and I pray that the seeds that you've pushed into the soil of the souls of each one of us today would be watered by none other than you. And may it produce fruit, meat for, uh, meat for the kingdom of God. And may everybody in here, as they begin to make this journey quietly in your presence, be so anointed, so driven, so touched by the Spirit of God that they begin to craft and create a ministry that will threaten hell and bless heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you much. You've been very kind. God bless you. Thank you.